We're going to be actually in 2 Kings uh, chapter 3. 2 Kings chapter 3. If you can grab your Bible, turn there. If you don't have a Bible, grab one. Share with someone next to you. You know, the Word of God is so good because it is the one book that God has given to us to make sense of life. There's no other wisdom that we have. There's nothing else that we have that we can go to other than the Word of God. And we cannot improve on it. We cannot innovate on the Word of God. Uh, it tells us what we need to know. It's the foundation for us. So let's, let me pray, and then we're going to read. Father, we thank you today, Lord, for just another day. Father, you have been so good to us. Father, as um, the song I was singing Sunday morning, Lord, just going on a prayer walk early on Sunday, just singing, Dios ha sido bueno. God, you have been so good, Lord, to all of us. And um, as Pastor Steve was sharing, um, I think it was Psalm, one of the Psalms, um, Come back to your rest, O my soul, because the Lord has been bountifully good to you. And the Lord has been so good to you. And Father, you have been good to us, Lord. So we come with hearts of gratitude, with hearts of thanksgiving. And we want to open our hearts to you, Lord, and ask you to speak to us, Lord, um, this evening. We pray that you would give us hearts that are able to receive, Lord, uh, simple truths, Lord. These are things we already know, Lord. Uh, but you want to underline them for us today, Lord. And I pray that we will see, Lord, those highlights that you want to underline for us today, Lord. That we would hear these things again, Lord. So that your word more than ever, Lord, will be a lamp on our feet and a light on our path, Lord. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. You know... When, um, if I'm asked what part, if you were to keep what, what, one part of the Bible, which part would you keep? I know the answer is supposed to be something like John or something like that. Um, but to be honest with you, if I were to, here where we live in the country that we live in, in the culture that we live in, I would keep the historical books of the Bible. I'd keep um, Second Samuel, First Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, and all of that, Judges, and so forth. And that whole section of the Bible, from Genesis to Nehemiah, from creation to the return from exile. I think everybody should read that. Do yourself a favor and read that at least once. Because most likely one of those people described there, whether it be Jacob or David or Jehoshaphat, or one of those stories describe probably where you're at, most likely. And today we're going to look at um, one of the stories um, that the Bible gives us here where there's a lot to learn from. That is um, in 2 Kings chapter 3. 
So I'm going to read from verse 1. Joram, Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned 12 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebath, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. So Joram is the son of Ahab, and he rules the kingdom in the north. As if you've been following Pastor Steve in, in 2 Kings and in, and in the Chronicles, we talked about that the kingdom was split. There was a northern kingdom, which is referred to as Israel. That's a little confusing because they're all Israel. But the northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. And the descendants of David were kings over Judah. It was one tribe, but it's actually they occupied a very large territory in the south. And in the north, there were no good kings. They all did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And in the south, there was a mixture. It was a mixed bag. Sometimes they had good kings. Sometimes they had bad kings. So, and this is one of those times where there is a bad king in the north and a good king in the south. So the bad king is Joram. So the Bible says, Joram, son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria, which was the headquarters in the 18th years of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned 12 years, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. You notice throughout the books of Kings and the Chronicles, when it introduces these kings, the one thing that's in common that's just highlighted for all of them is he did, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, or he did good in the eyes of the Lord. The way that their lives are assessed is not in terms of how much money, glory they accumulated. It's how they behaved and their obedience to God. That was the evaluation of their lives. It was not how many wars they won, how long they lived, at the beginning of every reign, of every king, good or bad, you'll see that he did evil or he did right in the eyes of the Lord. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord or he did right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, you may say that is Old Testament. In the New Testament, that's not the case. Well, that's not true. Because, you know, one of the most repeated sentences in the New Testament is what? I know your deeds. When Jesus writes letters to seven churches in each one of them, that's where he begins with. This is a letter from the one who holds the key of David, who opens and no one can shut and shuts and no one can open. That's the letter to the church in Philadelphia. And then he says, I know your deeds. doesn't say, I know your faith. He says, I know you're ready. That's Jesus speaking from heaven. Our lives are still evaluated like that. I was speaking to a church. I know your deeds. 
And when those letters, if you really re read them, they are about the deeds of those churches. How they behaved, how they were living. The Bible says we are kings. And so, how we live matters. And the lessons that we learn with a lot of these kings is when they lived a life of obedience to God, there was order in the kingdom. There was order in their lives. But when they did not, there was chaos, mayhem, disorder. And you probably have seen that in your own life, that when you walk with the Lord, there's order, and when you start neglecting the Lord, everything goes out of kilter. Everything goes sideways, and there's disorder that comes in your family, in your life, at your job. Something goes wrong when we are not walking with the Lord. We lose our peace and so forth. So the Bible says that this... Um, Man here, this king Joram, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But the Bible is so such a fair book that it said, but not as bad as his father and mother had done. Who was his mother? Jezebel. Not a very good woman. Um, don't name your daughter Jezebel, please. Um, and if you ever meet a woman named Jezebel, make sure she's thoroughly converted um, before you deal with her. So here, the Bible says that this man did evil, but he wasn't as bad as his father and his mother. Which in a way is a good thing. It tells you, you can do better than your parents. Now, he still did evil, but he wasn't as bad as his parents were. You don't have to, you can't use your parents as an excuse um, for evil. The Bible says he even got rid of um, the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. And we don't know why that's the case, but could it be his friendship with Jehoshaphat, who was a godly man? Perhaps. Um, could, might it be that Jehoshaphat, who somehow got into an alliance with the house of Ahab, maybe over time um, influenced him? Maybe. Could it be that he saw that there was judgment that came upon his dad? When the prophet told him, do not go to that war, you will die. And instead of listening, he turned his wrath on the messenger, sent him to jail. Could it be that the son was watching that as like, I don't want to do that, perhaps. But here's what happened in, in Israel at the time. The Bible says that now Meshach, king of Moab, raised sheep, and he had to supply the king of Israel with a hundred thousand lambs and with the wolves of a hundred thousand rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So at that time, King Joram set up from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. So for a while, the northern kingdom of Israel had subjugated the kingdom of Moab. And they had to pay them taxes. You can think of it that way. Every year they had to supply the king of Israel, the, the, or Ahab, uh, with, some, with a certain amount of money. You can think of it that way. 
But when Ahab dies and his son take over, these Moabites say, why in the world are we paying this thing to, these, to Israel? Let's rebel. So they rebel. And King Joram says, well, I'm going to lose that source of income. That's not good. Let's go and fight them and try to regain our control over their kingdom. So here's what happens. Now, he doesn't want to go to war by himself. So he sent a message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the good king in the south. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? I will go with you. He replied, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Wait, what? <laughs> Was that true? Well, it's true they are related by blood. They're all, all Israelites. But the problem is that this King Joram was a wicked man. Sure, not as wicked as his dad, but he was still a wicked man. He was not living for the Lord. And Jehoshaphat had no business forming a partnership with him. And so they suggest um, this to, to, to Jehoshaphat. And he says yes. Now, what are the things that he, what's some things that he did not do? Number one, Jehoshaphat did not remember the previous episode when he tried to help Ahab, Joram's father. In that particular time that I mentioned, when the prophet told Ahab, do not go to war, Jehoshaphat was there, listening to all that. And they, um, he went, he, and he almost died. <laughs> they tried to kill him. God rescued him because he was partnering with somebody who was not walking with the Lord. And now, the same situation happens again. And he makes the same mistake again. There are sometimes in people's lives, you'll see even in the life of a godly man, who's overall a godly man, there will often be sometimes an area of weakness that they have where they fall over and over again. And this was it for Jehoshaphat. This man had some kind of a structural weakness here where when people, uh, he knows better than what he's doing, but perhaps justified it. You'd see the reasoning here, I am as you are, my people as your people. That's the reasoning, you know, we're all Israelites, we're going to fight enemies of Israel. What's wrong with that? Let's go together. But what's wrong with that is that he's not a man who is walking with God. The Bible teaches... Do not love the world, as I mentioned on Sunday. Now, that doesn't mean that we, you hate the people of the world, but it means that you have to be careful with who you ally yourself with, who you come in partnership with. The Bible says, do not be what? Unequally yoked. This was an unequal yoking here. 
These were not two people who could walk together. The Bible says, how can two walk together unless they agree? Now, that agreement doesn't mean that you agree on every single thing that the other person believes. There are no two people who agree on everything. But it means if you're going to walk together with someone, you have to agree on the destination, what your ideals and your goals are. And when someone's life is not directed towards the Lord, they're not all about following the Lord. You have to be careful with aligning yourself with them. And well, I mentioned that, that passage, I said, do not be unequally yoked. We often use it in the context of relationship and marriage. And today, being Valentine's Day, let me take a sidebar on that, um, if you don't mind. You know, there is a 50% divorce rate in America, and that is among evangelicals. That's when you do not count Catholics, and this is people who claim to be born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, and so forth. 50%. Now, those are the ones who came out and officially said we're not together. If you count those who are still living together but are basically married roommates, the number is probably um, less than that. It's, and, and those who are just staying together to save face, the numbers are, are, the numbers are not good. Now, there are no such a thing as, as someone said, there's no such a thing as married people problems. There's only single people's problems that people bring into their marriage. Okay? And one of those problems is this, is that two people got together who were unequally yoked. One person wanted the Lord for real. The other person pretended they wanted the Lord. One person really wanted Jesus Christ and to pursue him and to serve him and to pour their all into walking with him. The other person was okay showing up to church on Sundays. And one person wants to grow in prayer and obedience and sacrifice and seek the Lord's will for their lives. The other person is just okay saying, I go to church on Sunday, maybe one more time, during, one more, once more during the week, and I pay my tithes maybe, and that's it. That's an unequal yoking. It will not work. It's often not a truth that's popular, but that is the truth. In order for something to work, for God to bless something, like a union or a relationship, there has to be an equality in the way that two people are pursuing the Lord. I'm not saying that they all have to have read the Bible the same amount or anything like that. I'm talking about the inner commitment to Jesus Christ and to living for him and to sacrificing for him. Both have to be in that war. Because once you get together, it's a three-legged race. And it is the person, it is much easier if one person is on the floor and the other is on a table, they're holding hand, it is much easier for the person who is on the ground to pull the person on the table down rather than you go through the lifting of that person above. And let me say something else about that. 
something that probably Jehoshaphat was now being realistic with himself about. You can't create spiritual hunger and spiritual vision in someone else. You cannot force spiritual growth on another person. People have tried that and tried that and tried that and tried that. It does not work. What you can do is, to put it in, in numerical terms, it, it, go, it goes like this. If on a scale of 0 to 10, this applies to every, your friend, anyone that you know, not just in the concept of a relationship. If you, if, on a scale of 0 to 10, if someone is at, let's say, a 1, and you're, let's say, at 6, and they only desire to get to three, you'll never get them to four. You can't get them to seven because you're not there yourself. You can get them up to six if they want to learn from you, but no matter what you do, if they only desire to go up to a three, they won't go past that. You cannot force spiritual growth and spiritual hunger to someone else. And the other thing that's even harder and is a miracle, you cannot give spiritual sight to someone else. Spiritual sight and vision comes as people seek the Lord and grow with Him. You cannot wake up one day and send that to someone and have them and, 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 and grant that to them. So those who say, well, I'm going to change him, I'm going to change her, there are people with a lot of bruises and a lot of pain who try to embark on that kind of journey. It just does not work. Do not be unequally yoked and trust the Lord that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 84, trust the Lord, walk with the Lord, serve the Lord. And before I move on to that, let me say something to the single folks here. Uh, don't spend your time and the rest of your, um, your energies trying not to be single. Take the time that you're single and use it to serve the Lord. I had a conversation once with uh, a wise person um, who, I don't want to name them, not because it's bad, I don't want to name them, but they're a very wise person. They told me, listen, um, you do a lot of things. You serve, you do a lot of things. That's a lot of things. One day, when you're not single anymore, you will have to change that. And no, they're right about that. What that means is there is an opportunity to serve the Lord in a way that will not be possible later on. It means you put in whatever you can now. It's a distraction. Take your, take your time, the days that you have, the times that you have, the flexibility that you have. Serve the Lord and seek Him with everything that you have. One day, if it is God's will and you end up with someone, the Lord will then use you in a different way that He cannot now. But it's, there's a window that we have um, to serve the Lord in this way. So um, don't, 
don't spend, don't suspend your life waiting for the day that you're not single anymore. All right, let me move on from that. One other thing that Jehoshaphat did not do here is he did not consult the Lord. He did not pray. There's no mention of prayer here. There's no mention of anything about the Lord. He did not pray. He did not seek the Lord. And so here they go, verse 8. By what route shall we attack, he asked. Um, Through the desert of Edom, he answered. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. So now there are three kings here. One godly man, um, an ungodly um, king of Israel, and a pagan king. So Jehoshaphat is now in an alliance with two ungodly people. And that's often what happens when you start to get unequally yoked with people, make alliances with people you're not supposed to. I was talking to someone yesterday, I had a long conversation with them, a person who got themselves into a bad circle of friends. Man, did they, have they suffered some real, real pain. Um, thank God they're getting out of that. But here's Jehoshaphat with two ungodly people going to a war, and he said, after a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. Remember what they, they say? They say we're going to go through the desert of Edom. Okay, that sounded, that sounded wise because Edom is their ally, so they're going to go through Edom, the, the kingdom of Edom, but what they did not think about was, well, in the desert, there is no water. And in those days, you have horses. Remember what jo- Jehoshaphat says, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Okay, So now all those horses need water, and they're now in the desert, and they've got no water. So now what's going to happen? All those horses are going to die. All their mules are going to die. Their camels are going to die. And they won't be able to fight the war. This is often what happens when we do not seek the Lord and we go on journeys that God, we did not check with the Lord about. Good ideas that sound good, but that are not prayed through. The result of it is often we find ourselves stranded, um, wounded, tired, exhausted, frustrated because we went on a journey in which we did not seek the Lord and we got together with people we should not have gotten together with, um, in an alliance with. Here's what verse 10 says, What exclaimed the king of Israel? Has the Lord called us three kings together only to hand us over to Moab? Wait a minute. When did the Lord call them? Did the Lord call them? When did, did they, the Lord did not call them. This is often what happens when we get into trouble. You often hear this when a disaster strikes. Where was God during this disaster? Where was God 
People ask that even when we had tragedies in this country. But where was God? Where, why did God allow this? Well, the, the answer is, when did we seek the Lord and invite him to be in our midst and to be in our circumstances? He's where we left him at. When we did not invite him in. And, but what often happens, as I mentioned on Sunday... A man's own folly leads him to ruin, yet he rages against the Lord, it says in Proverbs. It's when we get into trouble that we start to ask, well, where is God in the middle of this? Why is God causing this? Why is God allowing that? But when did we really seek the Lord about the way that we were going? When was there real prayer and a search after the Lord on, on, on that? So, Here's a man, and you see that came from the, 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 the wicked king, Jehoram. But verse 11, but Jehoshaphat asked, is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord through him? Is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord through him? Sometimes when we are we get ourselves into trouble. We're in a desperate situation where we might die or we may suffer terribly or, we, or where there's, a, there's going to be great loss or pain, as was in this case here. They, 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 they might have, they were facing certain death, most likely. Jehoshaphat remembered there is a God in heaven who always has an answer. No matter what the situation is, no matter how stranded we are, there is a God in heaven who is always open to hearing us if we pray. Josephat knew that. He knew the Lord. He knew he had made a mistake. But I want to talk here about the goodness of God in this situation. You see, when he went, someone said to him, well, there is a prophet here. Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. They tell him, yeah, there is a prophet here. There's a prophet of the Lord here. You can go inquire of him. He came back to his senses, to doing what he should have done at the beginning when they had asked him, hey, um, should we, do you want to go to war with me? He should have done what he had done with Joram's father, Ahab, and said that very same thing, is there not a prophet we can inquire of? And, but he did not do that, but he did get there. Like Pastor Keith was telling us some months ago at the uh, ministry meeting, the problem often is not that someone is doing something bad. It is that once it is revealed to them, they do not repent and they make no changes. That's often the issue. It's not that a person is making a mistake. It is that when it is brought up to them, by the Lord, God is using circumstances to cause them to turn to him, but then they, they do not change. That's the problem. Now, there are some folks who, you see, sometimes God allows us, allows us to get into circumstances that are desperate so that we will seek him, so that we get back to our senses 
Much like happened with that prodigal son, he got into a situation of famine and he remembered his father. God sometimes will allow that. He will allow heat to come into your life so that you will turn to God. Often when everything is going right, we turn away from the Lord. And God allows then pain and certain circumstances to lead us to him. Now some people are, like it said in Spanish, cabeza dura. So they're hard-headed. So they need extra heat from the Lord in order to come to their senses. Because God will send one circumstance and they won't change. God will send them a tough boss and they won't change. So they'll say, well, I'm going to switch job and go get another job. And God will allow another tough boss. And they won't change and God, they, they seek for another job. And God will allow another one. And often it is God simply saying, you need to come to your senses and begin to seek me again. Thankfully, Jehoshaphat was a man who instantly knew when there was trouble that he needed to go to the Lord. Let me say a couple of things about this. Number one, it says here, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water in the, on the hands of Elisha. What an interesting description of a man. It's an interesting detail there in the Bible because Elisha, who is the prophet here, was the servant of Elijah, the previous prophet. And he used to be, what it means there, that he used to pour water, it means that when Elijah needed to wash his hands, this guy will come with a kettle or whatever, a bucket or something, and he would pour water so Elijah would wash his hands. In other words, he means he was a servant of Elijah. And I feel this is a lost, a lost truth or notion in the body of Christ. The idea of serving another person in the church. It seems to be lost. Everybody wants to serve the Lord. Now that sounds spiritual, but it doesn't say here that Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of the Lord. Used to pour water on the hands of Elisha. I was really blessed I'm in my Bible reading through right now. I'm in, I'm in Chronicles and... Um, in, in First Chronicles, it, it, it talks about the mighty men of David, and it, it describes all these people. We all know David, but that whole section, it's almost like what? There's four chapters or something devoted to all the mighty men of David. They're not called mighty men of God. They're called mighty men of David. They were there to help David, who was called by God. To, to, they were there helping a man that God had called to fulfill the call that God had put on his life. And it, at some point, oftentimes people ask, them, ask, well, what's God's calling for me? What does God want me to do with my life? It's a very good question, and you need to ask that question. But I can tell you one thing. It's going to be very hard for God to show you and call you to do something specific for him if you have never served anyone. As there, can some, is there somebody in Christendom in the church, in this church or in a previous church you were at, who can say, yeah, this brother, this sister, they really served me. I needed help. 
and they were there just to serve me, and they recognized I had the calling of God on my life, and they just made themselves available to help me however way they could. One of the ways you find your calling is find somebody who hasn't found their calling in the Lord and just help them, and along the way God will show you what you need to do. I feel that is a lost truth in the church, and it, we are losing a lot by not talking about that as often. Who do you serve? Who do you have an attitude of a servant toward? We serve the Lord, but the way you serve God is you serve people. And serving someone can be as simple as, I don't know, it can be any kind of random thing. Um, you can help someone in a practical way. You know that there's something that will save them time, so you go and do it for them so they can have more time to pray or something like that. And God honors that. You see here, Elisha, the new prophet, when they talk about him in his previous life as a servant of Elijah, they say he used to pour water on his hand. That's not a very spiritual thing that he was doing, just some little practical thing that he was doing. It's not something you put on your resume. Um, but God saw him doing that and faithfully, and so when Elijah was gone, here he was um, serving I want to tell you, I can tell you that from personal experience. If you're willing to serve people and just be there, make yourself available, be a servant with no other agendas than just to serve, God will use you and will open ways in which you can serve. That's how we get tested. By pouring, the one who is faithful in the little will be faithful with much. I was at a Christian school a few weeks ago up north of Boston speaking at their chapel to their 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th graders um, a few weeks ago. One of the things that I, I really stress and told them from the story of David, everybody remembers David being king, and before that, killing Goliath. But what prepared David for killing Goliath was that he used to take care of a few sheep that nobody cared about. His brothers made fun of the little flock that he had. But he took such good care of that little flock that belonged not to him but to his dad that when bears and lions came against those flocks, he did not run away and say, that's not my sheep in any way. These are just some silly little sheep. Who cares? He fought the lions and the bears so when God wanted a shepherd for his people, to shepherd the people as king, God said, you know what, that's the guy I'm going to get. So when David was facing Goliath, the reason he had so much confidence is because he had fought lions and bears. He had been faithful in serving with the little flock, and God took him from that and made him a shepherd over all Israel. What I'm saying is that, and what I told those kids is be faithful at home with the little things that you're asked to do with your parents, with your teachers. Some folks here need to hear that. Be faithful in serving in those contexts, and one day God will give you something more substantial or important to do, however you want to call that. But that's definitely one lesson we learned from Elijah here. 
Let me say, wow, okay, I'm, out, I'm running out of time again. <laughs> so, one other thing that I want to say here, in those days, in the Old Testament, you see this notion of you need to hear from the Lord, so you go find the prophet, and uh, the prophet goes and seeks the Lord and hears from the Lord and tells you, thus says the Lord, you are to do this. Now, you have to be very careful with that because in the New Testament, we are children of God. God speaks to us as his children. So it will be weird if you came to me and you say, Freddie, your mom said you should do this. I'll be like, wait, why didn't she call me? Right? She, she, she has my number. Okay? So she talks to me. And so God speaks to his children in the new covenant. The Bible says in the old days God spoke to the prophet. In these days he's spoken to us through his son. However, we do have prophets in the New Testament. What they do, besides foretelling and calling people and exhorting people, in the new covenant, what we have is that God can speak to us through other people to confirm what he has already told us. So you do not see there isn't a single instance in the New Testament where a Christian said, well, let's go visit this person, let him hear from the Lord and tell us what to do. You don't have that. Post-Pentecost, you do not have that. But the Lord speaks to us, his children, but God confirms it through others. And a good example is Paul on his last journey to Jerusalem. He says, the Lord warns me that trials and tribulation awaits me. And God sent a prophet named Agabus who confirmed that. So he wasn't telling Paul anything new. Paul already knew that. And so we, what I'm trying to say, do not outsource. We don't outsource our uh, seeking of the Lord to someone else. You and I have to go hear from the Lord ourselves. So anyway, so Elisha, uh, so they went to, so all three kings, Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with them. So the kings of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him, that is to Elisha. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, what do we have to do with each other? Go to the prophets of your fathers and the prophets of your mother. Ouch. Um, no, the king of Israel said, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to hand us over to Moab. And Elisha says something here. I don't know if this was of the Lord or not, but this is a stinger. Uh, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you or even notice you. Wow. Doesn't sound very good hearing something like that from a prophet. Um, but it does tell you something. These people benefited from the godliness of Jehoshaphat because uh, if Jehoshaphat had not been there, these people would have probably been dead. And there is a blessing in being in the environment of a godly person. Some of you have godly parents, godly spouses, godly children. There's a blessing that comes with that. There's probably troubles you have been spared because of the godliness of people in your circle. And if you are a godly person, there's probably people who benefited from you walking with the Lord. That's the, the truth. And you see that here as well. It's really amazing the influence that one person can have. 
That's another thing you learn from these books of King. When there was a good king, all the, the people walked with God. When there was a bad king, the people went away from the Lord. It also teaches us the importance of leadership. Leadership in the church, leadership in the homes. When a father is godly, the home follows generally. When a wife is godly, the, the, and the, 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 the ideal is when both are following the Lord. There is a blessing that comes um, to that with that. And so Elijah said, um, now, I, I haven't seen anyone in the New Testament, any servant of God in the New Testament, talk like this to anybody. If I did not have respect, I would not even look at you or even notice you. So, um, you know, we, we, we are not disciples of Elisha. We're disciples of Jesus Christ. And uh, he said, anyone who comes to me, I will in no wise cast away. So, but here is an interesting thing. He said, but now bring me a harpist or musician. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah. I see, and here's what he says. He said, this is what the Lord says. Make this valley full of ditches. For this is what the Lord said. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water. You, your cattle, and your animals will drink. Elisha, Elisha sought the Lord with a musician playing apparently, and he heard a word from the Lord. Now please listen carefully here as I'm closing. One of the things that has changed from the days of the early church to this day is that people don't believe that God speaks anymore. Don't believe in the supernatural. And there are those who believe, oh, we, we just read the Bible and that's it. Well, the Bible does give us a lot of the moral guidance. And as I say, we don't have any other source of wisdom by the Word of God. But the Word of God teaches us that we need to go to the Lord and hear from Him on specific situations. The Bible doesn't tell you what should you study. Should you go for mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, or and, and where would you find that in the Bible? Where, where do you go? What job do you take? You have three jobs, three applications. Which one do you pick? And there are some who believe just pick whatever you want and, and it's going to, to, to be right. Well, that's not true. There is a will that God has for our lives in all of these specific things. And you have to seek the Lord about that. And what ministry you should do, you have to hear from the Lord on those things. And Elisha received the word from the Lord for this particular situation. There was no book he could have gone and read this in his days. He had to hear that from the Lord. God speaks. Still today, he directs people. But see, he had to seek the Lord. It wasn't, and the Bible doesn't tell us how long. It could have taken an hour that Elisha was seeking the Lord. It could have taken a day, 10 days. We don't know. I'm always blessed by a passage in the book of Jeremiah where some people told him, can you go and inquire of the Lord for us? And the Bible said to Jeremiah, a seasoned prophet. This is towards the end of Jeremiah's career as a prophet. It took him 10 days of seeking the Lord to hear from God. What happens sometimes is today is that we pray for 10 minutes and we say, I asked God, he didn't answer. 
So now I'm going to go do whatever I think is the right thing to do. But no, you seek the Lord until he speaks. And I want to say something about that. God does speak, but it takes two things. Number one is that you need to be desperate to hear from him. You and I have to be desperate to hear from him. You have to be absolutely convinced that divine guidance is what you need. And cry out to the Lord, Lord, I need your guidance. There's no one who can help me on this one. I need to hear from heaven. And secondly, you need to ask yourself, if the Lord was to speak, would you obey? Now, there's an easy way to know that. There are certain things that God has written in the Word of God that you and I read. And you have to ask yourself, have you obeyed the written Word of God? And have you taken that to heart? For example, the Bible says, Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love us brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. That's 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 to 9. Have you obeyed that? If there is someone with whom you are unsympathetic, unloving, that you are aware, that you are aware of, and if you know you are responding to insult with insults, but you think that's okay, but yet you want to ask the Lord, Lord, should I, um, what should I do now? Um, give me guidance. It's not going to work. We have to obey the Lord in the things that he has spoken and already in the revealed word of God so that we can have also direction from the Lord. Now here is the goodness of God. Despite these the fact that these people had started this journey without considering the Lord, without prayer, without consulting God. Despite the unholy alliance, the unequally yoked alliance here, look at the mercy of God. God did not say, no, I'm not talking to Jehoshaphat anymore. Two strikes, you're out. Um, he already did this with Ahab. Here he is doing the same thing with Ahab's son. I'm not helping him. He's on his own. Goodbye. That's not what the Lord said. It's really amazing to me because, I mean, these guys, Joram and this guy from Edom, these were not very godly. They had some detestable practices. But verse 18 said, this is what the Lord says. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also hand Moab over to you. You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, stop up all the, the springs, and ruin every good field with stones. The, God gave them more than they asked. They were just trying to find water. God said, okay, I'm only going to give you water. I'm going to give you victory in the battle that you're going in which is different from what happened with Ahab, the, 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 the father. He said, I'm going to give you victory, and you're going to overtake it. It's, and it's not going to be a small victory. It's going to be a, a, a triumph. You're going to, it's going to be a route. 
every fortified city. And the Bible said the next morning, the time of the offering of the sacrifice, there it was, water flowing from the direction of Edom, and the land was filled with water. This was a miracle, water in the desert. There is a miracle that happens for those who seek the Lord. Please listen. You, I don't know why you're fa- what you're facing. I don't know what situation you're in. Whether it's a situation of your own making because of your own neglect to seek the Lord or whether it's some other thing, it doesn't matter. God is good. If you go and you seek Him, He's going to have an answer. There's not a situation that has ever been brought to God and God said, this is too hard. I don't know what to do with this one. He made water come out in the desert the next morning and the land was filled with water, the Bible says. And it goes on, the Bible says that in verse 21, now all the Moabites had heard that the kings had come to fight against them, so every man, young and old, who could bear arms was called up and stationed on the border when they got up early in the morning and saw the sun shining on the water. The Moabite across the, Moabite across the way, the water looked, to the Moabite across the, the way, the water looked red like blood, and they somehow thought that this was blood and that these kings had killed themselves. And so they came out thinking they will be coming up on a dead camp, but no. Verse 24, but when the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled, and the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. Like God had promised, verse 25, they destroyed the towns, each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. They stopped up all the spring and cut out every good tree. And now this was war in those days. And it's what they needed. They needed victory. And so the Lord gave them that victory. 